Welcome back, everyone. We are back. You are back. We are all here together again after a brief break. Sometimes a little pause or an intermission is just what you need to get your creative juices flowing again. This is season four of Me, Myself, and Millie, a podcast that gives light and levity to infertility and different pathways to parenthood, hosted by infertility sleuth Millie Brooks. Today, for our first episode of season four, we are going to unpack the ways the fertility industry is so heteronormative. And with me to do that is the amazing Tracy Joe Palmer. Tracy, I am so fucking glad you're here. I am so fucking glad I'm here too. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Oh, this is, I'm, I've been wanting to talk to you. I love your stuff on Instagram. You're so profound. You, um, I just love everything you articulate. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan. Wow. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. Um, you know, new day, always good for a new, always good to have a new day. That's right. That's right. Well, let's get into a day in the life of TJP. Tell us who you are, what you do, and where you live. Um, I My name is Tracy. Um, I have a wife named Lindsay. We have two dogs currently. Um, I'm a fitness instructor. We're currently still in like COVID quarantine right now when we're recording this. So yes, not currently, not currently fitness working, but um, that's what I do. And I live in Portland, Oregon right now. We've lived here for four years. We lived in Los Angeles, California before that. I love Portland. I love Portland too. It's oh wonderful. my gosh. Are you guys afraid a lot of people from California are going to move to Portland? I mean, we did that. So we can't <laughs> even be mad about it. We're the people that everybody hates that did, exactly did that. Okay, so if I ever... We literally wouldn't tell people when we moved here that we moved from California. We would say where we're originally from. So my wife would be like, I'm from Baltimore. And I'd be like, I'm from Minneapolis. And we'd just like skip the Los Angeles part. I love it. I love it because I've come, I, I've visited Portland a couple times. It's one of my go-to cities that I just love going on vacation um, to visit. And I remember going through the neighborhoods and seeing the state of California just like crossed out on some of the um, for sale signs on the houses. Yep. I mean, when we first moved here, we could not change our license plates on our cars mm. fast enough because we, people's cars were getting vandalized if they had California plates. That's how bad. I think that it's changed a lot in the like four years since we've been here, but Definitely in the beginning, it was like, don't tell anybody you're from California. Oh my gosh. I, to I, I could totally see that. I could totally see that. Like change your license plate, change your driver's license, yep. change any sort of California yep. swag you have in your life. <laughs> exactly right. Yep. But I, oh, like man. I said, I think it's different now, but four years ago it was, we weren't telling people we moved from Los Angeles. <laughs> Yeah, you got to keep that on lockdown. <laughs> um, well, give us a glimpse into your fertility journey so far. Yeah, so we started trying to conceive in 2019. We did. We started with um, at-home IUIs with a midwife. Um, we so we used a sperm bank. They mailed 
the vial every month to our house and our midwife would come over when I was ovulating. We did that for five rounds. Um, we did six IUIs. So one month. I love that. Yeah. I, I mean, nobody, that's not a traditional route to take. Like people typically go to the clinic, but I remember looking up a midwife coming to your home and being able to do that. What was that experience like? It was, it was wonderful. I mean, for my wife is a behavior therapist. She's like full science based. She was like, let's go right to the clinic. And I was like, no, I want this like beautiful experience where we like get pregnant in our home. And, you know, like, I don't know. I had like romanticized it a bit, I guess. So it was, it was beautiful. I mean, my midwife would come over any time of the day or night whenever I was ovulating and, I would light a candle and we'd lay in our guest room where like where I meditated because I thought that that mattered. And, you know, it was, <laughs> <laughs> that that it, it was beautiful. Uh, it did not work for us, uh, but it was it was a nice um, it was a nice idea in theory. And it does work for folks. Um, I just think for us. Ovulation tracking and all of that, we learned so little about it in school. And so I think we had such a huge learning curve doing like basal body temperature tracking and all of this stuff that even when I had all the information I could have, I still felt like I was guessing about when I was ovulating. Totally agree. So, and with frozen sperm, you just have such a smaller window of getting the timing right. So, Oh my gosh, yeah, because does the midwife thaw it for you? She does not thought we had to thought. Oh my God. Yeah. So it was like, I, every time I'm like, we just burnt them. We killed them. We burnt them all. They're fried. Like every time my wife is like shaking, holding the little vial, like handing it to the midwife, (laughs) hoping we don't like drop $800 on the floor. Wait, so how would you thaw it on the stovetop? <laughs> um, no, it's we ha- we used like a very specific thermometer to get the you just use like tap water, but get it to a specific temperature. Oh, okay. you get it to like basically body temperature. But I it see. was bizarre and it was like, I hope we did it right. Like you just don't know. Um, and so eventually, you know, after six IUIs at home, five months, we were just like, fuck this. I was like six burnt IUIs. out. So one month we did two IUIs to try and really nail the timing. Oh, like a back-to-back thing? Yeah, we did like one one day and the next day we did another one. So, it, I mean, it's just a lot at home. There are a lot of variables to account for. And so eventually we were just kind of like, we need some medical professionals to help us with this which is what made us go to a fertility clinic. Um, we've done three medicated IUIs. We've probably got one more on deck. We were going to switch up our protocol. We did Clomid the first three. We're going to switch to Letrozole. And then I think after that fourth IUI, we're going to have a, we're going to regroup and we're going to talk IVF talk. And so you are, you are in the process right now mm-hmm. of starting your IUIs at the clinic? We've done three medicated ones at the clinic. You've done three. Okay. Yeah. And so you're going to do a fourth. Right. And we then- had the second IOI we did, I had a chemical pregnancy. 
Okay. So it worked, you know, technically speaking, um, which is which makes the jump to IVF almost harder. Oh, totally. So totally. we're we're like, you know, but we're also to the point where like statistically speaking is continuing down the IVF path or the IUI path, uh, like wasting money essentially. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, as we'll probably get into later, I think that the statistics around IUI success rates are also very skewed because the studies that are done are typically with women who are in heterosexual relationships who are experiencing infertility, which Mm -hmm. is not necessarily we're not necessarily experiencing infertility. We're just starting from a harder place with yeah. frozen sperm and having to do IUIs. And, you know, it's oh, just- God, it's, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. So it's that like when the, they say- the trials, when the, the people that they use are all in heteronormative relationships. Yeah. Wow. And just, like most of them aren't using frozen sperm, mm. which makes a huge difference. So there's just all of these little- um, things that you don't think about actually affect decisions that queer couples make, but we're having to kind of like take the studies and the stats with like a gra- a bit of a grain of salt mm-hmm. because they don't specifically apply to us. Right. Um, I mean, I think I've found two studies on lesbian women and single moms by choice, which a lot of the you know, issues and fertility that queer folks deal with are similar issues that single moms by choice deal with. So I feel like those studies can almost be kind of lumped together. Um, But but two studies is all we've found, which is, you know, a little mind boggling. That's disappointing. You know, how, yeah, you're trying to make decisions, you're trying to navigate your next steps, and there's just not the data out there. Yep. And even the data at clinics, you know, the clinics are like, our live birth rate with IUI is X. And it's like, well, yeah, but how many of those are queer couples and how many of those are people who have been diagnosed with some sort of infertility? Mm -hmm. Mm Because those are two very different things. So it's just, it's been a, it's been a challenge, especially when it comes to like making the leap from IUI to IVF. That's, you know, we're, that's, I think that that's why we're a little like, do we do more IUIs? Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That would be so tricky. Yeah. That would be really tricky. Um, and do you, so do you feel like, um, I mean, let's talk about your clinic that you're at right now. How did you choose that clinic? My OB uh, recommended this doctor at Oregon Reproductive Medicine. Her name is Dr. Barbieri. And she specifically recommended her because she has worked with lots of queer couples. So she came highly recommended as a same-sex doctor. Um, So and to be completely honest, our clinic has been really, really wonderful. All of the paperwork is super inclusive. There's no assumptions made about your partner being opposite sex. It's been fairly... in-clinic experience has been fairly good. We had one little snafu where there was a new form of paperwork that we had to sign and they brought it into me at one of my mid-cycle ultrasounds and was like, all right, we need you to sign this. And it said, um, 
where is your donation coming from? Your wife, Lindsay, will provide her sperm, blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, I just laughed. And I was like, I wish my wife could provide sperm. That would have saved us a shit ton of money up until this point. So they had like already- different options. Yeah, they had already- options. And they had written in her name for, okay- For as the options, I think it was you know computer generated like insert yeah. spouse's name here, and you know I laughed and I was like, and the nurse was so embarrassed and she you know changed the form right in front of me, but you know another person may have gotten really upset by that and they would be justified in being upset by that. So you know, and it was just like obviously that form had just been created and it was just an oversight, which you know no hard feelings on my part, but it's just there's kind of the heteronormativity showing through that like a form is made with the assumption of a heterosexual relationship. Yeah. I'm you're you're making me want to reflect on the forms that I filled out. Um just, you know, the initial intake forms. Um those are pretty like geared towards heterosexual couples as well. Did you Did you find that, like, did that come up for you at all in those initial intake forms? Um, You know, I think, once again, our clinic, and I even had a nurse tell me that they have different forms for same-sex couples. Mm -hmm. So our clinic is super great in that way. The one thing that's come up that we did sign, and um, in my talking to different people online and different queer couples that I've met via sharing my journey one form that seems to kind of strike a nerve and maybe trigger queer couples a lot um, is the one, it says something along the lines of you're using a donor, you agree that you will like care for and raise this child as if it was your own. Oh. And, Mm. and you know, in like to back the clinics, it's a legal thing. And they don't just make queer couples sign it. But I think when you enter the the medical world as a queer person, little things like that can just kind of, you know, put you on edge or kind of put your guard up a little bit. And even just something as simple as like, hey, we make every couple using any sort of donor sign this could kind of alleviate a little bit of that defense that maybe queer couples are put on after having signed something like that. Like, obviously, we're spending thousands and thousands of dollars for the, for to get pregnant. We're going to, we accept this child. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm sure then going back to your, um, when you mentioned drawing parallels between single moms by choice mm-hmm. and queer couples, I wonder, so single moms by choice also probably have to answer that question as well. Totally. And I even asked, I reached out to um, someone I know who works at a fertility clinic in California. And I was just like, hey, do heterosexual couples have to sign this form as well? Um, And she was like, yes. And I also kind of crowdsourced and asked any heterosexual couples that I know that had used donors if they had had to sign this form. One of them said no, and one of them said yes. So I think it's clinic specific. I don't think that it's something that queer couples 
are forced to do that heterosexual couples aren't. But I do think that it's just a language thing. If if they said, hey, just FYI, every single couple who uses a donor has to sign this, it may just alleviate some of the, I don't know, pain that causing that form for a queer couple causes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, um, it's, it just seems to me like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about back to another conversation that I had with my friend, Justin, um, who is going the, him and his partner are going the surrogacy route and just finding a clinic that is queer competent and proud that they, um, serve the LGBTQI community was so important to him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it could really, you know, it can really like change the experience for people. Um, just a couple of small changes, just in the wording, just in the paperwork. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Um, well, so let's, let's also kind of under the umbrella of this topic, let's talk about heteronormativity in fertility advertising. You know, it's everywhere. And when are we going to have a queer identified couple in a clear blue and, you know, first response pregnancy commercial? You know, like I'm ready for it. I I I think we're all ready for it. Yeah. Or even a couple that's not like wedding rings prominently displayed and a, you know, crying cuz they got their positive test. Like if they knew the market for infertile people or queer people buying their tests, I think they may shift their their advertising, you know, because it's just it's not representative of Who's buying? I mean, how many tests have we taken? Oh, just just you and me. You know <laughs> what I mean? But we could. I could fill a room. Yeah, like it's <laughs> so even just not even just a heterosexual couple with a wedding ring, but like you know, even just like not having sex to get pregnant. Like families are made in so many different ways. Thank God for science. But so it's just. I think it's time. It's time. I mean, even I remember getting so frustrated every time I would have to take an ovulation test because then it would be like, go have sex. And it was just like, <laughs> oh my God. well, having sex is not what's going to get me pregnant. So just like, you know, couldn't they just like word it differently? Like now is where you would introduce sperm or something. You know what I mean? There are different ways that you can word it. It doesn't have to be go have sex or even I was just, my wife just got me an Apple watch and I like sort of hate myself for having one, but I, <laughs> but I was just, I was like, Ooh, they have a cycle tracking. Like Apple has its own cycle tracking. And the only option is had sex or didn't have sex on ovulation days. And it's just like, that's so limiting in who that applies to. And not just queer people, you know, single moms by choice, anybody who doesn't get pregnant by having sex, you know, it's just, it's just very limiting. It's, it's interesting. And I, I mean, even pregnancy accounts on Instagram, parenting accounts on Instagram, uh, so many of the jokes about husbands and pregnancy. And it's just like, 
uh, it just gets a little like tired. Oh yeah. I'm exhausted. Like, are, I mean, we, are we done with just like the husband jokes? I don't like. I am so exhausted by the husband jokes, like the husband bumps. Like, I think I'm done with that. Yeah. <laughs> the husband bump photos. I don't. I don't need that in my life. Yeah, I don't. I definitely <laughs> don't need that either. Yeah, I don't. It's just. It's interesting because you just don't eat. Like, folks don't even think about it. But like, replace husband with spouse or partner. It's really that simple. I like that. Where else have you seen this in the media? Uh, I mean, any book, not any, but most books that you've read about fertility, family planning, parenting. They're all geared towards the heterosexual experience. Yep. Every single one. Any, I mean, going back to what we talked about previously, any study about fertilities uh, or about fertility or infertility, 110% is just heterosexual couples. Um, like I said, in how over a year and a half of trying to conceive, I've found two studies that have been on lesbian women or single moms by choice. Um, so I just, I think it's, it's all over and it's, I don't believe that it's purposeful, but I do think it's time for us to kind of wake up and realize that the, you know, the nuclear family is, is gone. Families are made in a lot of different ways. They look all sorts of ways. Um, so we just need to move on from the husband wife dynamic. I think. I would just absolutely love that. So I, and now thinking back to some of the books that my husband has been reading in preparation for fatherhood. And even in reading some of those books, I was like, wow, this is so gendered. This is so gendered. Um, and it really made me upset. Like even one book was like, in the beginning, it was like, Aren't you proud of how you got somebody pregnant? You know, like it was like you, yeah, like you're a man now. Oh. And I was like, oh, well, actually, that didn't happen for us. You know, we, you know, male factor infertility was our main diagnosis. And, um, and how damaging could that be for your husband to read? Yeah. It's, as it's like insulting his masculinity. Yeah. And I, I just was like, I think I was wounded by it more than he was. Yeah. Yeah. But but it was so like, it just felt so like you're, you're not, you're not bringing the full scope of all individuals here. Totally. You know? But I think that it, it, it kind of goes back to, uh, even what I was saying before, like how we feel like we learned so much about tra cycle tracking and all of that. And I, what are we taught in school? You have sex once you get pregnant. Like we just aren't taught about really and truly how complex this process is and can be. Um, so it's just, it, it's the, the scope of things is just so narrow when there's so much more to be learned and, you know, we could all grow from. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, 
Well, I, you know, you, you mentioned the one instance, um, at your clinic with the phrasing of the donor, um, any other instances that you've heard, um, in the queer community where heteronormativity has been a barrier at the fertility clinic? Yeah. You know, I talked to one couple, it was, um, two females. I forget where they were. I can't remember what state they were in. Um, but they had to actually see a counselor go to a therapist in order, in order to even be approved at the fertility clinic to have, to start, to begin the process of trying to conceive. Um, so, and you know, absolutely. I guarantee there's not a heterosexual couple that has had to go through counseling in order to conceive a baby. <laughs> so it, you know, just little things, not, that's not little, but you know, things like that pop up. Um, we, I feel incredibly lucky that we've had such a f- supportive clinic. Um, but if you, you know, if you speak to any queer people trying to conceive, it's just, it's hard. And I think the cost factor for queer couples can be extremely prohibitive. Um, and that's not to say that, cost isn't an issue for a lot of people trying to conceive, but the differences with queer people, no matter the path you take, uh, it's going to cost you money and it's going to cost you money from the absolute beginning. Um, so I think that that's something that's a, you know, a different factor that queer and, and even single moms by choice, um, deal with that other people experiencing infertility who are in heterosexual couples don't necessarily go through. That's a great point to bring up, I think, because you're already starting at a place where you need intervention. Yep. You know, there's not, you can't bypass that. Right. Like even we've had people be like, well, couldn't you use a known donor? Then the sperm is free. And it's like, well, no, because you still need legal documents that are signed between both parties if you're not having them involved in the child's life. So that free sperm actually costs you, you know, how much in legal fees. So there really is no, no, nothing is free. And even, you know, for gay male couples, surrogacy, so expensive. Uh, The other thing, you know, and and I'm sure lots of people have heard this, but why don't you just adopt? as if adoption is the easier or cheaper choice, which is absolutely not true. Um, So no matter the route you choose, it's going to cost you money from point A as a queer person. Where have you seen um, this come up in everyday interactions or just curious conversations with people? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I would say heteronormativity specifically shows up, but I will say that we, I think that people ask us questions, um, and are a little bit more, I don't, they're, they have fewer boundaries, it seems with us than they would with a heterosexual couple. We get a lot more people who ask like how we're going to do it, who's going to carry. And it's just like, would you ask a heterosexual couple how they're going to have a baby? Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
So it's, and, and that, you know, and that also assumes that the heterosexual couple is just going to have sex and that's how they get a baby. So it's just, you know, the questions that we get asked, we also get, I think we get the just adopt thing a lot more than heterosexual couples. Once again, because for whatever reason, people are under the assumption that that is the easier choice. Um, and also it's a choice. It's, it's, it's a different path. Um, so to kind of say just adopt is to undercut and discount all that goes into adoption. Yeah, I think there's there's so much ignorance in that statement, too. You know, it, it just feels so lacking with understanding yep. of how the adoption process actually even works. Right. You know? Yep. Um, what do you think is Im- important for people to understand about the queer community trying to build their families? I mean, honestly, I think the expense part is a huge thing for people to understand. Um, just because with knowledge like that comes the advocacy that could lead to more fertility coverage laws, um, to mandate fertility coverage and insurance in more States. I think only right now, I think 19 States, um, have fertility coverage mandated, Um, And even within those laws, there isn't specific language that covers LGBTQ family planning. Um, So I think for me, the expense is something that can lead to change that could help queer families with the burden of cost of this process. Because I think we're extremely privileged to have the money to be able to do all of this. But how many queer families would love to have kids, but just can't because the cost is, is too huge of a factor. Um, so I think that that's a really, really important thing for folks to understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of this is coming out of your own pocket, you know, one for us, 100% is, uh, fertility coverage is not mandated in the state of Oregon. Uh, so we've spent 100% out of pocket. And the, even in the states where fertility coverage is mandated, um, so most people know that a heterosexual couple typically needs to try and conceive for a year on their own before they'll even get some sort of fertility coverage if they have the fertility coverage. So what that means for a queer couple is that for that year, they're still having to pay out of pocket for, you know, a, sperm bank, possibly a midwife coming to their house, or even just the fertility clinic fees um, for that time up to getting possible fertility coverage. So where a heterosexual couple gets to have sex at home for free for a year, um, a queer couple is spending money every single month along the way. Wow. Yeah, I think that I think that's another hurdle that people don't factor in. Yeah. Is just the timeline. Like the uh, you know um when the coverage kicks in is is different, you know. Yeah, and I I have some friends who have had really wonderful doctors who have been like so you've been trying to conceive for a year, correct? Wink, wink, mm. you know, so that then that 
fertility coverage can click. Cause I mean, technically, yeah, we've been having sex for a year and nothing's happened. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. so yes. I, I, I do know that there are doctors that are cool about it and whether that's legal or what, I think it's probably pretty murky, murky in the laws there. Um, but not all states have the coverage, first of all. Um, and not all doctors are willing to be that cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, how can doctors, friends, clinics, advocates have a more queer friendly approach to the work of family building? I think it basically comes down to, um, losing the assumption of a heterosexual relationship. Um, and also just language, like I said, that the one form that seems to be the biggest trigger for most of the queer couples that I've spoken to of, will you raise this baby as if it's your own? So much of the hurt that's caused by that could just be alleviated with a sentence prior to that saying every single couple that uses a donor has to sign this form. So I think just like language, once again, going back to partner or spouse, versus husband, wife. Um, I think that also as like, you know, so many non-binary folks in fertility clinics now, husband or wife doesn't apply to those people either. Um, so just more inclusive language, partner and spouse is not a hard change to make. It's very, very simple. And I think that that's like, honestly, something that small makes such a huge difference to make people feel welcome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and like you said, having different forms, you know, like even if it's, you know, for everybody's unique situation, making sure to have that available is so important and can make, and like you said, can make a big difference. Yep. Our, I mean, when the first meeting with our uh, fertility doctor, she asked us our pronouns, which for us was like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> like we're on yeah. board now, you know, because it's, it's just, that's something so simple that can make such a huge difference. You know, I have, I teach a class with middle schoolers and we do pronouns at the first day of every class. And I just love how it's normal for them. Yes. Yes. You know, I just love that, like, she, her, him, his, they, them. You know, it's there's no jokes that follow it. There's no, um, uh, I think, you know, like, what's a pronoun? Shoot, I forgot this in grammar school. You know, it's just, like, so normal. Kids are just amazing that way. and And obviously, these younger generations have grown up with this. So, you know, as time goes on, things are bound to get a little bit better. But I do think that we still have a responsibility to folks now to make those changes. Yeah, 100%. What makes your blood boil about all of this? I think lack of fertility coverage nationwide um, is pretty infuriating. Um, And then, like, just the lack of LGBTQ language within those laws. Um, I think that, you know, cost can be one of the most frustrating aspects for queer people. So I think that, 
it kind of comes down to that for me that insurance companies are way behind the times when it comes to helping out queer families. There's another question that I forgot to ask um, when we were talking about donor sperm. Mm-hmm. Was there any major factors that play, you know, played into your decision when um, choosing the donor sperm? Um, the donor process was so fucking bizarre to me, to be completely honest with you. Like I, at first was like really freaked out. And I was like, this is like some Gattaca shit. Like I, I like I just was, it was like really weirded me out. And then I was like, you know what? Fuck that. We're spending like $900 a vial on this shit. I'm going to pick every single detail about my child. And so for us, it, it really, we've had three different donors um, just because we've got had gone through so many IUIs and donors sell out and um so I think at first we were really really picky about you know we want the donor to have specific characteristics of my wife dark hair dark dark eyes more olive complected um and I think as time went on we just it 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 ultimately came down to the health of the donor and some of the things that uh, would make them compatible with me, blood type. Um, there's something called CMV testing, um, which we also had to kind of factor in. So looking at medical history and, um, those sorts of things were the like number one priority for us. And then the rest was kind of just like icing on the cake. So, I mean, my advice to anybody picking a donor is just like, don't get too overwhelmed in the details. Pick like two or three things that are really, really important to you. Um, and the donors will kind of narrow themselves down from there because the, the donor pool is really not that huge. Um, so, you know, the genetic testing and the medical history were the two biggest for us when choosing a donor. Do you get to see a picture of them? Yeah, and from our sperm bank, we could see um, a like a, ba- a baby pictures. And some of them are young children uh, as well, not just babies. I've heard that some banks now show adult pictures, which would be very interesting. Um, but our bank, we use the Seattle Sperm Bank, and they just have baby pictures. And you know what was very interesting for me was they do audio interviews with the donors. Oh, so you can hear their voice. And honestly, there would be the perfect donor on paper and I'd hear four seconds of his interview and be like, (laughs) no, next. Like it was bizarre how much the interview would like weird me out. Oh, I've never heard that before. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, I was picky in certain ways, but I think, you know, now we're on our third donor. It's kind of just like, well, we know this one, you know, this one worked for me once. It was, even though the pregnancy didn't stick, our clinic is kind of like, yes, stick with this donor because we know that it's, you know, you're on the right path with him. I know in the UK, they give a celebrity lookalike for each donor (laughs) instead of showing you what the actual donor 
you know, a photo of the donor. Which is kind of mean. Like, let's get real. Your kid kid is not going to look like Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, exactly. We all wish, but no. (laughs) That's funny. I've also seen where you can like put, you, you like put a picture of your spouse in something and then they're like, here are a bunch of donors that like look like your spouse or whatever. Those are some of the like fancier banks, I think, that get into the very pricey, you know, yeah. end of things. But now I I remember again, I'm going back to a conversation I had with my friend in the UK who <laughs> with the told me about the celebrity lookalike. She had also mentioned to me that they can um you can decide, like the donor can decide whether or not the child has their information, um, you know, in 18 years or, yeah. you know, something like that. Was that a factor for you guys? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm adopted. Um, so, and I was given information regarding my birth mother at the age of 18. And from there, I went on this journey and I, I met her and I have, subsequently met my birth father. Um, and so for me, I can't imagine not knowing where half of my DNA comes from. And so it was very important for me that our donor was at least open to contact when our child turns 18. A lot of people don't want that. They want the anonymous donor 100% completely anonymous. But for me, I think, uh, leaving it up to my child is what's important to me because I can't imagine not knowing where half of me comes from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, I'm also remember resort, like going back to that conversation that I had that you can kind of tell if they are queer friendly. And, um, I remember my friend telling me that like, that was important for me in choosing donors, um, that the donor was, you know, queer friendly because that, you know, that's going to be the life that we lead. Um, and that this child is surrounded by. Um, is there any information that can you can find out about that? Like their kindness level? Like on a <laughs> rate from one to 10, what's your kindness like? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, for us, there was one question in the audio interview because they asked the same set of questions to every single donor. And there was one question in the audio interview that became extremely important to me. Um, And so we would honestly like listen a little bit, fast forward to this specific question. And it was, um, why do you want to be a donor? And their answer to that question kind of would say it all to me. Um, And it was like the the people who said like, um, I want to help families that, you know, couldn't otherwise have a child without a sperm donation. That to me was kind of like, all right, you understand a lot of people who may need your donation might be queer people. Um, and honestly, even some, cause there are a lot of them are, you know, younger guys, they're, you know, college students, a lot of them. Um, you can just tell in, they would ask like what their relationship is with their parents, um, what their majors, like what their job and what their major is in school. And so you can and I never heard anybody say that they were or were not 
queer friendly in the interview, but you could kind of deduce it from other things within their interview. Got it. Yeah, you could probably pull it pull it in in a in yeah. a different way from totally. some of the responses. Um well, how can people follow you and your journey, Tracy? Um I'm on Instagram, um Tracy Joe Palmer. Um and that's where I share everything about our journey and the inequities that I discover along the way. Um so yeah, Instagram. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful voice in the community. I am so, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. So much fun. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Me, Myself, and Millie. Follow us on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie for more podcast updates. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and share on social media. A special thanks to my husband, Rowan Brooks, for technical support and Cal Reichenbach, who did all the music you heard in this episode. You can check him out at calzonemusic.com. Thanks, cutie bombs, and see you next week. Bye.